just puts the icon up instead. It's great. And we are live-ish. We're recording, at least. Woo! I mean, that's at least 25% better than it was a few moments ago. What? Yeah. Anyway. Hi. Well forward. We're back-ish after somewhat of a hiatus, at least for me. So uh, I don't know if episodes got uploaded in the the duration. But anyway, we're here now. And uh, with me is Catrice. This is Rob, by the way. Hi. Oh, and, uh, and 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 uh, that that over there is Lenny. Hey, Lenny. Hello, I'm Lenny, retired games industry micro celebrity. Yep, that's the guy. Uh, and Sabrina's over there joining us hello, hello. from Canada. Yes, Canada. After however long, Canada is that was last real. Time. No, anyway. well, to be fair, most states aren't real anyway. Most. <laughs> Not technically are. So tonight we're talking about a topic. Come on, we just covered that. Yes. <laughs> the the main topic we were considering was uh, yes. Go ahead. Uh what games what we wanted games to do beyond fun, why that matters, uh how we as players, GMs, designers why would we want to care about that? What kind of games engage with that? And how attempts that either brush up against that or contradict that make us slowly go insane or loathe social situations, as you do. Great. You make this sound like we had actually planned this out for like more than two minutes. Smooth. There. I, <laughs> I come from from big university student. That's basically the lifestyle you have to get used to. Yeah, the university students patron Saint Bullshitticus. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> We're I there mean, already. Fantastic. I mean, it's still one of my patron saints. So I mean, you know, it doesn't just have to be for Bullshitticus has got a pretty wide wide up uh umbrella actually. Uh uh that's true. I imagine that there are worse demons to summon or gods to call upon. Uh, really? I mean, I guess. But that's, it's, that's, that's really down there. Nope. I wouldn't say I have enough experience to make a judgment call on that. I mean, where do we want to start? You were mentioning some it, difficulties. It might be the lowest one. It might be be the very worst thing. It might be what Dante put Satan at the bottom of the ninth ring for. For bullshit. It's insidious. Sorry? I said it's insidious. It's insidious. Yeah, it is. Look at the presidents that get elected on bullshit. All of That's them? That's true. The, we'll look at the entire them? field yeah, of like... politics. <laughs> I didn't say it. You said it. <laughs> I knew it was blatantly obvious. <laughs> Correct. 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 So, yeah. so Rob. Sir. 
tell us about how you hate fun. I don't hate fun. I love fun. In mm-hmm. fact, I love fun so much that I'm willing to hate everything else to make fun better. Tell me about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's like thinking about fun all the time. Right. In essence, trying to find the divine in fun. Like contemplating it so deeply that it becomes bottomless. But that means the exclusion of everything else, and that leads to a lifestyle that is quite clearly insane. Okay, fair enough. But before we start, you'd actually had mentioned just before we started recording that you could give a definition for fun, and that would probably be helpful for this oh, sure. kind of setup, actually. I can, the, fun, the kind of fun I'm talking about is that which distracts you from the stuff you would want to be doing otherwise. that you would want to be doing otherwise correct like being productive or you know things that make you satisfied with your life i guess yes yes right like where where you are having you are having you are having a meaningful so the kind of fun i am um not interested in is the kind of fun that is not not meaningful after the fact so, like, if I'm enjoying myself, and then afterwards I go, eh, like that was that was not that was fun, but it was kind of right. like I'll I will forget that it was not it was not significant, literally. Right. And that's the kind of fun that I find in a lot of games. Mm. And so that because I love fun so much, games displease me. Right. And I think there's an element to where... At a religious uh, level. Yeah, well, on a religious and holistic level, in the sense of when he used a certain amount of his experiences that are enlightening or meaningful, you have a different baseline. And then there can be a weird disconnect where this is me coming from certain games and then going back and going back and forth, which is when it comes to RPGs and recognizing how they've had an impact on how... I engage with the world if we go back to our esoteric landscapes episode and being able to say this is a meaningful experience comparatively. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have games that don't do that or, you have, or you're expecting that and you have groups that seem to basically lap up that non-meaningful fun, it kind of not only pulls out the rug from under you but gives away the game in the sense of you're not unable able to unsee it, basically. Like we mentioned with Dungeons & Dragons a few times, that the way that the game is framed, or the way that you understand how uh, dungeon mastering works, or the game's incentives, you see that structure, you can't unsee it, and one can have meaningful experiences in various games, but there's a degree to where it kind of stops, or I would say that if you have a good group of friends that you play with, you can push towards that meaningful experience, or this is a group of people I will engage in experiences with that are meaningful regardless of activity. But when it comes to games, they're usually like time mobile games come to mind with time wasters or trying to get microtransactions. There's the um RPG studies quote that always comes to mind about comparing D D to capitalism where 
basically the structure of the game can is argued in various academic texts as being similar to a resume, similar to like you're trying to save the world through money, but then when you look at it from a design perspective and otherwise, everything kind of breaks. Um, and then when you apply that to other games as a whole, either from experiences or through like um, what is what is a uh, MMO like ro or MOBA rotations, like you you do the same pattern over and over until it becomes autopilot. But then that expands further and further into your lexicon of play. So like, okay, this mechanical thing that was an interesting challenge is no longer a challenge. Then the entire meta experience without various stipulations becomes boring. And then it kind of spirals from there because like people can say that, you know, you are saying so much that I'm finding it hard to actually engage with anything okay. you're saying. Okay. <laughs> I need to slow down. And also I can't yeah. tell what I was saying that was meaningful or not. <laughs> yeah, you kind of got a little carried away with like there's, there's you are definitely a college work. student. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you are constant swords right now. It it is it is very obvious. Okay. Well, but you're doing about, good. Not, that's, we, not, that's not a critique. Yeah. Now how about we? Oh focus no, it's lovely. On it's lovely. One of the it's things. Entirely. Yeah. 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 So how about we focus on like one of the things? I yep. go back to say like there is a lot of stuff said about D and D. But let's try to focus on like one part of it. Like say a merger between like what Sabrina was saying, and what Rob was saying. Like the thing about um, wanting to get fun out of it in such a way that it's actually meaningful. Mm -hmm. So, like, the idea of when you're, let's say, after the, the game session, say, like, a week later, a month later, a year later, is there going to be anything about that session that still sticks with you? Mm -hmm. Something like, even so much as just a story that you can tell that you have fond memories of that can help you out if you're feeling like shitty or something like any kind of D, &D story that doesn't end with the phrase and then i roll the 20. but those are the fun stories that D, &D produces so you have to give it credit for that like it, it it bakes in a certain degree of meaningful experience by creating a meaning randomizer like that's it, it drips it out like like Diablo drops unique items. Like it, that's how it, that's how D and D works. It, it, I it, so I know it does, but I don't find it meaningful. Like it, I know you don't. when somebody tells me those stories, it's like, yeah, but you didn't do anything. Right. That, like what did right. you do to get this out of it? It wasn't like the story of like, oh yeah, there's a dragon and I was gonna breathe fire and we conjured water and its head fucking exploded. And it's like, okay, right. you solved the problem in an interesting way. I like this. It right. was not rolling the 20. Right. My experience though, when people tell stories like that, is that the meaning that is inherent to that experience is not in the narrative. It's in their recollection of the whatever was the emotional tapestry of the moment yeah. or bonding with their their friends or whatever like like it's inter it's interesting because like there's there's potentially two axes of what we might call meaningful play right there's meaningful in the sense that the structures in the game itself contribute to creating meaning like a narrative meaning i guess to be you know to truncate it into to something we can talk about right and then there's 
meaning as in the game structures are designed in order to create a bonding experience among the participants that they would consider meaningful. Right. That's that's right. the kind of thing that so so like there are a lot of and I'm not saying I want to clarify before I go on that I'm not saying like the the fun that is had in these games is somehow bad. Right. I'm not saying that um it's a bad thing to seek this out. I'm saying that at this point in my life, I have done so much of that that it is exhausted. And so I am stuck in this place where I still want to have the experience, but nothing out there delivers it. And so I have to design it because otherwise it's like I can either get mad or get better. So Or or if I'm I'm understanding you correctly, you want to have that experience, but you also want that experience to be for something. Yes. There there is yes. As you're saying the twofold axis there yes there is the both the, the dual thrust of i want the experience itself to be engaging and then the takeaway from the experience to also be meaningful right yeah so mm-hmm. there are there are times when the game is very engaging but the takeaway is not very meaningful um even when you know you have connections but you know the the, the meaning can be created by games that don't do this but um it kind of fights you and right. the the meaning is created by doing it successively over and over again and getting to know your friends better through things other than the game but it would be wouldn't it be nice in my view uh if the game facilitated you getting to know your friends by helping them uh you know sort of pour themselves out into right. the game better so this almost sounds like a matter of efficiency. Like, it's not just that you want the game to do something meaningful, really. It's almost like if you're just doing it and it's just mindless fun, then it's like, yes, but I could have had f- mindless fun and gotten something meaningful out of it and had like social interactions with my friends and gotten to learn more about them. And it's like, basically, you want your game to be multifaceted at this point to be delivering more efficient use of your time so that it's not just doing like one single thing sort of well it's like you yeah. actually want it to have more stuff it's right. doing yeah as, as as a busy adult i like the, yeah. my time is very constrained and so i wish to bake in the the totality of the experience that you know you get from a year of gaming with the same group into something like 10 sessions right you know and it is you you are right it is an efficiency game and playing by by stripping out the stuff that i don't feel is relevant to that project but it it but it, it, it i also have to be careful not to strip out the stuff that's relevant to making the game fun mm. right i guess the, like, inherently term. engaging. Let's not say fun. Let's say yeah. inherently engaging. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I think the the thing that comes to mind is thinking about the experiences you met with engagement. The only times I've had a succinct similar experience is a solo D and D play by post campaign that's gone for five years, and various moments of being able to look back of a mixture of meta text and in game 
RP talk that led to a giant branch of decisions that we referred back to almost like a set of in jokes. Right. Uh, that's like more yeah. outside the game and more building a relationship with this GM and like a session of some Forge in the Dark games that I still have notes on and I'm excited about, but I can tell that that group has been not very consistent. And the main point that connects with what you're saying from those two is that like if the other players aren't looking for that or if I want to say that there's a weird sort of you need to have extra investment in that while yeah. games are also saying we're going to be more multifaceted but not always doing that. Yeah. Or it's in a very like artificial way. Multifaceted being kind of a buzzword that gets thrown around. Not sure. Yeah. I yeah, feel like I... Lenny, if you have something to add to that, go ahead, Rob. No, I'm just I, I, I hear what you're saying and I, I, I like where you're going with that because it is the sort of the sort of um trying to layer it in such a way that the mechanics will open up those possibilities to the players who aren't otherwise looking for it. Right. Right? Give them the space to want that because I it is my belief. I well, you know what? It is not my belief. It is my experience that uh, people enjoy the kind of being heard that comes with telling their story. Right. And so, but oftentimes we do not make space for that. And so right. by consciously making space for it, and I, I, the other part that you mentioned that was I thought was very key was the uh, play-by-post thing where you can go back and look at it. And that's why I included the journaling aspect as a core yes. component because you get the, you, you get the timeline, right? Right. You, yeah. you, re you reify the character through the narrative of yes. their timeline. Right. So thank you for like yeah. both those things, like the, both those things are, are, yeah. are and like the, the weird specific example was just thinking about an example for the sake of clarity. And I think it's interesting is that, it was a first time I was playing a wizard who was level six. It was a scribe wizard, and their campaign was effectively doing stuff for an archmage in a magical city. And it was a set of encounters surrounding a a head of uh, intelligence operative, basically trying to get this character to basically betray her dad for the state. But the entire situation was. She avoided it, but the amount of cascading situations of you go invisible, you walk uh -huh. around the entire set of invisible walls, but then we figure out what were they going to do if this character didn't miss it, their entire arc, their entire sense of morality, or if you just booked an appointment with the head of intelligence, or you just gave me a call, um, I would have totally helped you like, basically ransack this creature from another plane to help the state because... I have no class consci uh, critical consciousness yet, and that entire thing going off into you are basically going to start committing treason or sedition, and both the players and GMs are on board for it, and because you have player notes, you can engage with that and refer to that. But also not everyone takes notes, and I want to say like what you're saying about telling stories is there, but you need players and the GM and the way that people engage with the game, such as taking notes or talking about the game itself, to be actively listening and engaging beyond just talking. Like you need to make that space, but you need to also have that space to listen and engage. You need to encourage each other. 
You know, this actually ties into something that Lenny had said earlier. Like, the the note-taking is kind of important, but also he had mentioned, like, the thing about it being somebody's perspective and what they actually perceive is not necessarily the same as what actually happened, but that's kind of the important part. And there's a very simple thing that I've, I learned a couple years ago, which is that at the end of every session, do a quick recap, get everybody who played to try to recap the session in one sentence. I it tell it get the GM to write these down as notes because it basically tells you what the players actually found really interesting and what stood out as important to them in the session when it happened. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, I, I, I essentially just enforce that practice, but I just ask the players to do it. Yeah. Yeah, the, it is really yeah. the only thing that I would have to say about it is that, that there are or there are challenges on the other end of of this process. If we're ta- if we're talking about like you know designing a game in your case, Rob, right? Such that the ex- that, that, that this experience is provided, right? Uh, like I can tell you that all of the most meaningful moments that yeah. happened in my gaming life and the campaigns that I remember where there was something going on thematically that sticks with me or a particular type of bonding or all of that. Yeah. Um have happened entirely by accident. Right. So like there is this thing where you know one of the the best ways in game design I think to get people not to do what you want them to do is to tell them to do it. Exactly. And uh there is a danger if you don't watch it, that like you expend well, here, so here I'll give you a good historical example instead of instead of just fucking bathing off at the fucking mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Jason Morningstar's Gray Ranks, right? Mm-hmm. Was I believe this could might be incorrect. Um, I believe was the game that spawned the use of the derogatory term misery tourism. I don't know if y'all are familiar with that term, but it it basically was used derisively to describe games like Grey Ranks that in my like what I'm hearing you say, like there's the a form of like like Grey Ranks tried to do that thing. You played a, a young Polish partisan in nineteen forty four fighting in the war, right? And the mechanics of the game essentially require you to cannibalize your own character in various ways as adulthood and its demands come screaming into the life of, you know, a 15, 16 year old kid. And, uh, you know, the gameplay, if you play it hard, like if you play it to the wall, it, it it creates some tragic, this true story. I played it with Jason at uh, Gen Con uh in 2006 i think and um you know it was new then and he was showing it to me and even just the one scene that we played at the table i was the kid and the whole scene was just a simple conversation with with uh my mother about why i'm going to war Mm -hmm. and whether or not i can attain her blessing essentially 
to right. go to war. And um, and me and Jason were playing it in in this the little demo area of our booth, which means people could overhear it. And we like had spectators by the end of that thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, and uh, you know his. That's definitely an example of a game I think it is trying to get to to what you're talking about, okay. Rob. But there's an object lesson in it as well, which is that the backlash that sort of resulted, like the fact that a whole term was invented mm-hmm. to to try and say why games like Grey Ranks are bad, right. speaks to something very elemental in the consciousness of the, the hobby gamer audience that we would be yeah. unwise to ignore. I guess that's yeah, what I'm I completely say. agree with that. I, I mean, in fact, that's not even, I mean, my, my project is, is, I mean, almost the opposite. It's, it's, it's taking, it's the idea of going, well, one of the things you can do in Ashes and it's encouraged is taking that idea, right? You're, you are doing what that game is offering, mm-hmm. but you also, but the thing is the game also offers you a way out. So you get the you get the brightest heroism in the darkest times, right? That's that's the premise essentially. It's like you have people that just survived the apocalypse. The apocalypse is still happening around them, and you know <laughs> what he, what people will do in that situation. You know, being told that they are heroes is they will try and stop the apocalypse as it's happening, right? Right. Right. So. That I don't tell them that. That I mean, I'm telling them that now if they're listening to this podcast. But I don't tell them that as part of their game. They wake up. They don't know shit. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so, so the whole point is like I'm not trying to get them to do what I want. I am trying to make space inside this fucked up thing for them to address it in the way that makes sense to them, and through that, tell the story that they're trying to tell. Whether that be, you know, a veiled version of them or like, hey, I want to take these ideas and play them out to their logical extreme. Right. You right. Know? And and like, you know, the further ch- the fr- oh, sorry, Kat, you wanted to jump in. I saw your thing thing flare up. No, it's fine. Um, I was just going to say that I think the important part that Rob's trying to get at is that I think he's aware of the fact that if you just tell somebody this is what you're supposed to do, then they kind of tend to rebel against it. Like, you basically have to say, give them enough information that they can piece together what's expected of them, but make it so that they come to that conclusion on their own and so that there's enough open room for them to do something else if that's not exactly what they want to do. Because if you force the matter they're not going to go along with it. Like they'll rebel against it just on principle. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, no, definitely. Um, I mean, there's also, a, there's also a strategy number two, which is trick them into doing it. Right. I mean, it, it, is magic, right? it is magic. But what Sabrina was describing earlier, one of the things that was in that, that giant uh, text block at the beginning <laughs> was, was, um, the idea that there's a uh, once you see it you can't unsee it, but you can you can kind of rebuy in, and in that way it's kind of like seeing a magic trick, like a stage trick, right? Like you know that the magician is doing a trick, right? You know that the game is sort of like prompting you to do these things, 
But in order to be here and present and have fun, you want to buy in, right? And so like to the degree that the game makes that buy in easier, you have a smoother experience. And D&D has like a tough buy-in sometimes. Yeah, yeah. D&D's rules can shock you into unbuying into it. Yeah, I've I've had that experience this last week. But I'm also thinking about like there's a weird fucked up thing in what you're saying that like feels worth printing out, which is like there's this idea that Lenny mentioned about tricking them, and then y'all mentioned about okay, um, you know, Cat mentioned that you know if you tell them what they're supposed to do, they'll rebel against it. Or you need to open room for something else, but my brain immediately goes to, well, how much, like, if, if we're, like, it's not mono, making a monolith out of D&D, but if we think about that as a starting point for people, we want to have more meaningful experiences, either how much does D&D, groups of D&D, push you towards a weird thing where both of these two situations crash into each other, of the game is about often, like, the GM will tell players what to do or define the bounds of agency. If they rebel against it, usually that won't work or they will not have the tools or language either through right. the mechanics or through the game to define their own fun or f- like figure out their own way to engage in the conversation. And so the expectations are usually pieced on their like individuals at the table and it doesn't really add into anything. Or the distribution of like fun or investment is top down. And because there's this weird situation where you need to have that rebuy-in, like there's a weird collaborative style thing that I noticed of when I have that rebuy-in, if you acknowledge that curtain or the veil of this there's a dynamics going on and you can have a lot of fun fucking around with the boundaries there, like um, you know, the game will be like this, but as a gym and player we're doing this or this entire group is going to we have this idea and it's might make the game implode on itself but we're going to lean into it as hard as you can but if a like subculture or the way that a game is presumed to be played means that acknowledging that veil or pushing against it is in itself not allowed or discouraged then that kind of spins everything out because then it is it kind of isolates you in an odd way but that's a better time to do it um, right. What I'm what I, what is useful to reflect on there is that that's a self isolating experience. Right. Like it, like what people like like meet right like meet a D and D table will tr- will have self isolating experiences because yes. I'll be like, what's going on here? Like, yes. how are these people enjoying this? Right. But I have to recognize that I am I am the one who is somehow disconnected. Right. And it's my disconnection that I'm seeking to resolve, right? right. But, but, but I'm noticing that most of my time, my disconnection happens when I'm asked to engage with rules or parts of the game that I don't find meaningful. Right. But, but I can't not do them, right? Right. But then it becomes, feels like work or homework almost. It's not right. like... That's where Blaze yeah. in the Dark is good, like, because it has that, like, sort of fail gracefully, where the mechanics, like, will are there for you to use, but if you forget to use one at some point, like, the game kind of doesn't give a fuck. Like, it, right. it will allow you to track what the game cares about, which is, like, heat, wealth, stress level, trauma, all that stuff. It cares about those things. But those are, like, right. concrete on the character sheet. Right. The other stuff that gets you there, it doesn't really, it doesn't really care. And that's, right. there's, a, there's a part of that I really admire, because it allows the players to forget the rules and be like, eh, yeah. 
right. and that's the, fine, right? Because yeah, the players are deciding what rules are meaningful, and yeah. that's what they should do, right? Yeah, so like, like, uh, do you so look like at the character sheet first? Do you look at the fictional situation first, which we've went through a few, mentioned in various stipulations? Right. Yeah, the UI of the game is the fiction, but also the character sheet, yeah. Mm -hmm. well, one thing that you've both kind of been lightly touching on, but not really going into, is a lot of the issue seems to be not just the game mechanics, but the way you're telling the players what they should be focusing on. So like, if you look at like a D&D module, it's basically, this is what you're supposed to care about. You should have the buy-in to save the village because it's a story about saving the village. If you don't care about saving the village because your character ended up being an evil necromancer or something. It's like you don't have the buy-in for the game. It it falls apart pretty quickly. And that's a large part of why DD has issues with evil characters, because the buy-in usually doesn't work with them. Right. Whereas if you look at something like Mark's game, if he had been here tonight, so he's off for good reasons. Yeah. But Mark's game has like initial buy-in where he sets it up oh. so that the players themselves Praxis Arcanum. Yeah, yeah. Praxis Arcanum. He he basically sets it up so that the players themselves determine what the interesting parts that they want to explore is. But it sets it up with just enough. Uh, indications for them to have an idea of what they're expected to put in for this. So, like, it'll ask them, what is the weird magical part about the world? Like, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be magic. It might be, like, mechs or psionics or something like that. But it's, there's something weird about this world. What is it? And it asks the players, and the players have to fill it in because the players are obviously going to be interested about the thing that they come up with. Yeah. So once you do that... Narcissist, every you know, single one of them. Play. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, people are, but that's, yeah. that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, you know that when the player comes up with something, they probably are interested in that something. If yeah. You, yeah. If you set something up that they hopefully are interested in they may not be interested in it and if it's too strict and you force the matter and it's like no you're playing the game wrong you have you have to be interested in this thing and they're not interested in it yep. it's not gonna work yep yeah i mean you know fundamentally that's why fate like that's why aspects work as well in Fate as they do, right? Because it's literally a bunch of things you have just written down on your own sheet that you think is cool. And like, and you, and the game forces you to incorporate that stuff into the fiction in a crude way, because it was, you know, 2006. But, um, you know, it it's, uh, that's why it works the way it does. I was going to say, that's a good segue into the, into the thing that, that I felt was worth saying. Um, mostly riffing off of Sabrina, is that you're never going to get around the fact that role-playing games are a... Role-playing game design is the attempt to structure a piece of a conversation that happens in a shared social gathering. Like, mm -hmm. you can't... Like, the primary meaning of almost any 
RPG endeavor, it, whether the game is designed for it or not is going to come from the people, right? Like, um, so when you have that meaningful campaign of, of D&D where there was all of this story that, you know, you made choices in and it had resonance for you for whatever reason, right. even though the game isn't designed itself to right. to force you or trick you into right. doing that it has a weird function in the social mm -hmm. context yeah. as an alibi that lets the participants do that for each other yes right, right. and there's a weird situation where i think like that's an important point where like if you can remove the game layer then that's when you can tell th something about this works like it's right. like when people talk about stories from Skyrim or other video games, they usually won't talk about the specific mechanical interactions, but the exact situation. But then, like the conversation of how much of it is the game versus the table, can be kind of fruitless because it's a combination of those things, as you said. Okay. Go ahead, well, bro. I mean, the 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 if there the fruitful part of it, I think, is to recognize that as a game designer, you maybe. If you are both lucky and good, or more lucky than good, get to structure 20 to 25% of the social experience, right? And that like, that like, what you're doing really is creating a sense of ritual around a social experience. I would actually say scaffolding. Right. Scaffolding for a ritual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's something... Like, you can't build the entire experience for the players because, like you said, it's the players doing it. What you and can do is set it up so that there's enough structure that they can build upon it themselves because they know what right. to do with it. And like That's Rob was saying, like, if you make it easy to do, right? Mm -hmm. If you make it easy to do and the game is at least written as such to sort of, like, show you how to do it, like... I think at that point you've done all you can, right? Like at that point in time, you have to like step back a few paces and say the author is dead. Yep. Do what you want and hope hope to yeah. hell that some people do it. Yeah, I mean that's what I, I have said before that ashes probably won't be released in my lifetime. So I want to be actually dead, so people right. can ask me questions. <laughs> Just don't not asking for really rolling clarifications yeah. on Twitter. Well, yeah, but oh, gonna, you. people are still going to ask you questions. They'll just use a Ouija board for it. Yeah, that's true. I'll You're going to outlive me, though. That sucks. Like, I'm never going to see the final. No. This could be fixed. Um, what was that conversation about? <laughs> that was about, well, like, the, the, the main part of the conversation was, like, basically <laughs> Lenny mentioning, like, it's part of a so like th this phrase that came to mind that hooks into my brain a little bit, which is like, what you're really doing is scaf scaffolding yeah, for ritual yeah, yeah, of yeah, socializing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the extent to which, like, I, I, I liked what you said. Thank you for that. Uh, I liked what you said about like the, the the player getting to write down what they find meaningful on the character sheet, and that's why character creation is like engaging, right? Because the in fate you're getting to build the character, but also build part of the story, right? So, um. My, and, and, my, build, and build your relationship with the build your relationship with ideas. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, 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 right. So the idea is that um, what, I mean, just expand that and keep doing it. Essentially, like keep asking the players to 
do that essentially don't stop character creation at any point so let let the characters keep i mean that's why the journaling keeps happening you're flipping pages right so they're mm. you're continuously doing the 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 aspect naming thing because you're i'm continually asking you what you care about right, right? and it's interesting um one i had a weird fluke yeah um with um uh, a game that does that basically creates the character sheet the first the first scenario or as many scenarios as it takes to fill the character sheet right. um is yeah. it's not it was the leverage rpg the recruitment job i ran a recruitment job once um in leverage and like just because of the way that the session turned out by the end of it everybody only had like maybe a third of the stuff they were supposed to have on their sheet <laughs> and like and it occurred to me, and this is kind of where it's related to what you said, it occurred to me that, like, if we continue going at this pace, literally the first, like, three or four whole sessions of the game is technically character creation in progress, yeah. right? And that's a, that's kind of an interesting... It's kind of an interesting thought that that the entirety of the game, in some sense, is character creation, if the character right. is... Like yeah. the object that exits the game, right. having had all of its blanks filled in. The, the, That's what you have in a novel. Like you don't. At no point does the character stop being created at any point during the story. Right. Or right. some. I think Jesse Stommel has some. There's a point that Jesse Stommel makes a lot, which is connecting education design and incentives to game design incentives. Mm -hmm. And the idea that comes to mind is like, there's this idea that a lot of educators say that you never stop learning and you never stop growing. And this idea that comes to mind that I've done in some games as a player, but have rarely seen games deal with the Ashes or things like that, is like your character will constantly grow such that, for example, instead of having a backstory you started with, the arc from a few sessions ago will basically replace that. And often GMs will try to do a version of getting you to keep caring about your character or growing them in isolation between sessions or in a way that is very, I don't know, like checklisty, mm. which can be. Janky, like sure. I know that, uh, sure. like, like that. <laughs> yeah. And there's also a weird situation where some games will ask for that investment, but then mechanically, basically get your character down really fast. Shadowrun is an example that I usually harp on because, as a storytelling player, having a GM that loves Shadowrun and then you just see how many times you can get screwed over hurts inside. Um, but also where other Did groups will be no, go fuck yourself. <laughs> um. <laughs> Then you will have groups that also do this, but then again, like you, if you point out the cognitive dissonance, then there's a weird situation where, like, you just kind of see everything for as it is. Or I want to say, like, let me try to bring this into a question so it's more cohesive, which is what y'all are saying about game designers doing 25 to 25 percent is there. But when we go back to the helping players be better players episode, like, both as designers, players, GMs, and just people in the world, there are ways that we can do this not just within our games, but the way that we engage like in play and in general, right? Because I'm right. thinking about if you want to expand this. Yeah. Well now now you're now you're think now you're talking about designing the culture. Right. That's yes, it's essentially right. Yeah. So that what that what uh, yeah. So that's what I meant trying to do within Ashes is is, is design a uh scaffolding system by which the players can design their own culture. That fulfills them right but sabrina sabrina if i'm understanding you correctly what you're saying or what i what i'm i'm understanding you saying is that like 
it, there's one way we can structure the conversation as game designers, right? But it's also important to structure the conversation, to have tools that structure a different part of the conversation that's in that 75% block, right? Right. Yeah, like the the analogy that comes to mind is when I first read Apocalypse World, having that role-playing game to the conversation, seeing how that's branched out into me, basically. The analogy that comes to mind is when I was doing some chat in the official D&D Discord and being able to say, my collaborative styles of players X, Y, or Z, getting a lot of encouragement or being able to bring design knowledge and also player knowledge from the, the subcultures I've understood and how I would define the subcultures of how I engage with the role-playing games to other environments. And I also understand that, for example, if you give a feminist reading of, for example, how D&D handles gender and you can connect to other games, you can broaden the conversation. So it's not just, it feels like with certain games or certain conversations, you can have a problem where it'll infinitely loop on itself because of the system you're in or the framework of conversation you're doing with design or with the players. Like, you know, you can endlessly go talk about certain D&D things, but the fact that certain things are optional means that you need to have the table that you want, like mesh with the kind of D&D you want. And then having that, again, go to the designer layer of safety tools or hacking rules or just generally feeling about like boundaries. I guess the idea right. of boundaries is like certain... That's always the case. Yeah. That's ahead, always, I'm just saying that's always the case. Yeah. Like you, you, you're always doing that. So like the game, what, what, what a good game should do is help with those things. Like help the players identify what kind of experience they're each looking to have and let them, right? And then where those experiences actually overlap is where they're coming together. Right. But so I guess, you know, yeah, yeah, that, that feels. Do, yeah. See, the thing is, if somebody wants to do the necromancer, like Kat, Kat was saying earlier, like the necromancer of the army of undead in a D&D game, and the, the, the game is like, no, we're three paladins and we're going to go fight the bad guy. And one player is like, yeah, but I want to want to do this thing. But can I come join you and fight the bad guy? And the paladin's like, yeah, no. Right. That doesn't work. But but what if, right? Like that necromancer and those three paladins each have their own little thread of story. And then when their their stories overlap, they have these these crisis moments where they all sh show up. But there's the scaffolding to get them there that makes sense. So it's not just a series of disconnected encounters that that some games will turn into because we need to have these these bang moments to get to actually have conversations about, right? Right. And, but, but, but it feels flimsy yeah. because we don't understand, like, we don't know how these characters fit together. We don't understand what their motivations are. And that was, you know, goes back to what Kat was saying about mm -hmm. um, having the motivation put on you by the module. So yeah. like in a game where you have a top-down motivation that the players are not aware of, right? Uh, like Blades in the Dark says, you're all, you're all thieves trying to just make enough money to retire and you're probably going to die, like traumatized, right? Right. That, like, that's a, that right up front. Mm -hmm. D&D is like, you get to go be the big hero, but it's actually get on this money treadmill mm -hmm. and kill stuff. Yep. Right. And it's like, if you try and do any, you, and D&D &D will let you do the big hero stuff, right? Yep. But if you eschew the go kill stuff and get money, it, it, it falls Which apart. Which D&D itself was trying to start to do, and then right. subcultures that are used to like not doing that or pushing against that, but then like this, and, and yeah, and, it's this weird jank. Yeah. Right. 
So, but that's okay. That's the thing. Yeah, like, yeah, so, totally. So people, I, I, I am not again. Yeah, this is not just the flare forward is not just dunking on D and D. Yeah. Yeah. No. D, like this is ever. I have had so much fun with D and D. Yes. Yes. The reason Absolutely. the reason I'm I'm an RPG designer, not a video game designer, is because I think RPGs are perfectly poised to give the experience yes. of deep meaning because it one it has the social aspect where you are bouncing off other people and getting reflections back, right? And you are dealing with human minds and not an AI, and you are you are being surprised by your friends, <laughs> the things your friends. That's so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Yeah. So let's get to that. Let's do that. Let's not do how many plus one short swords do we sell to resurrect the cleric. Right. And and this is a weird situation where, like, because games aren't played or designed in a vacuum, you can try to design it. But there's this weird situation where you step out and you have to figure out, like, what is the larger reality of the context of the game that's being played. Like, I think you mentioned often that people, when they play RPGs, come in with a whole bunch of baggage or their way that they're raised socializing. And it's an extra challenge to, like, for me as a player, the way you're describing games, absolutely. Like, I would love all my groups to be like that. But it feels incredibly rare. I'm not sure if, like, you or Lenny's designers or Kat have stuff to add to that, but I feel like there's, there's this weird thing that we're heading on, which is that we all want this similar idea usually, but it feels rare or hard, and there are inc- a lot of limits to it. I feel like most games as raw just don't let you. I feel most games, if in order to play them the way they're intended, you have to engage with a significant chunk of mechanics that you otherwise wouldn't. I think that's I think that's largely a, a problem, a big right. problem. And, and and I mean, you know, that phenomenon is understandable though, in the sense that like. I think very few games have been designed with that intention because no, like yeah. because exactly. like it's not it's a pretty niche intention, right? To like to like say, hey, I'm intentionally gonna sit and have a structured conversation with three of my friends that helps us bond and like displays vulnerabilities and allows us to think meaningfully about the the universe and 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 stuff i mean you know it's a tough sell like it's not that tough though is the weird part because like so many people actually do play games where that happens where it's not part of the game's mechanics it's just like this is just something that kind of happened and it's like yeah this was one of our most memorable sessions where we didn't actually go kill anything we just sat around and talked right that was weird and it's like wait so we already know like a lot of players have already encountered this occasionally and it's right. just been like this rare exceptional thing that happened is like that was amazing that was really fun right. why are there no games actually where they may chase that in a that? way that they may chase that which can be a form of like you know, when you're grinding in a video game for that amazing loot drop to go back to the Diablo analogy, but with RPGs, but then because of how mm. social it is, that hits a bunch of other factors. It's hard to replicate it, and I think that might yeah. be part of why and, there's and, not yeah, trying to replicate it. it. Trying to replicate it at a certain point may be futile because you're like, you're not letting yourself be surprised. At least that's the yeah. analogy that comes to mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like it's like you don't you don't. No, it's just about, it's like crafting, it's like building your own luck, right? Right. 
you don't you can't not you can't make luck happen. I, you can I, only create better opportunities. I think there's something I think there's something also that that ties into this at least in terms of like design stuff is that like the games that uh, that I know of most of which have been written by Jason Morningstar let's fucking face it. But um um but but also I mean also Will March is always never now. I think there are a couple there are a few um every uh role playing game that I know of that tries to hit at Rob what I think you're you're talking about are all to a one designed to be very brief one session to maybe three session long intense shared experience that if you give yourself to it is 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 almost guaranteed right to create something that's going to have resonance later on down the road but but the implication of that design is that is that um people do not consider that or designers have not historically considered that to be something that is a sustainable experience and i think one of the things i'm hearing you say without saying is that sustainability over the long term is a is a key factor of what you're talking about yeah that's why that's why well not why but that's i hope that the by extending character creation essentially throughout the course of the story you're continually drawn back in to discussing what matters right you know because you're because what you put on your character sheet really matters right. <laughs> actually like, that's it's the, it's the most matterful thing you do in a game is like it's that's... written yeah and that so, says what the game values including yeah. like socially this is actually something that Sabrina had mentioned a while ago that I actually want to get into is the idea she was saying of like the mechanics of, well, the things that you write down on your character sheet, um, the things that make you care about your character. This is basically broken into like, there's mechanics of gameplay and there's mechanics of character design. And these are basically two separate things, but they're, you usually write the mechanics of gameplay on the character sheet, not of character design, which I think is part of the problem there. So like, if you have, okay, this is to use like an example for my own game, just cause I'm familiar with it. I specifically and intentionally built in a thing so that, like, if a character starts doing something on a regular basis, basically this kind of habit or something they start building upon, it, it generates, like, a personality quirk for the character. It actually ends up going on the character sheet. It affects how they play in the long run, but it's it's something about their personality. It's something right. about the actual character that goes onto the sheet. And because it's actually something of the personality, it plays very different from just, this is a game mechanic. Like, yes, it affects, like, gameplay. It might actually affect, like, your stats at some point. But the important part is that this is something that entails the personality of the character this is something that has been ongoing for 
a significant period of time, like maybe the character's traumatized or whatever. Right. Like, we keep facing giant spiders and now they're fucking scared of them because they've nearly died to giant spiders three times. Actually, one of those wasn't nearly, they did die, but they right. got revived. But the point is, spiders not having spider shit any longer. Yeah. And I know that <laughs> the, the, the Obsidian's The Outer Worlds, I think, tries to do this in places where like i think it's if you yeah. get burnt by fire certain things you can develop that but it's a choice i think that 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 exact game if you have it occur enough you can choose to take a perk point and you can get a permanent buff or debuff as related um i think that's how it works but i like the way i think that it's just, always a debuff it's always yeah. a debuff in exchange for a, a perk point right and i think like the main thing with that game is that there's a pretty decent level or like a build cap with that, so that kind of makes it so at a certain point, like you have your build and it stops. But I think what Cat's game is doing that I want to appreciate is that you're having that weave into the narrative aspect first, while most of the game, for what I remember you pitching about it, which is Sayosa, like being about characters confronting their own like sins or personality or contradictions in themselves. Mm. So you have this, like not this, not just mechanics loop, but this mechanics of the com like this this framework of the mechanics around the conversation of the table and the game um in the way that spire says don't roll if aren't there, there aren't stakes and then a lot of the game is built around that you can say a lot of say or so conceptually is the game cares about your character searching for various goals from their guardian angel or contradictions in themselves it pushes you towards that in almost every way and when you're not doing that that can be an exception but like in my head just the entire premise being towards the reason you're playing is because you're do not only doing these quests, but exploring these contradictions in your characters and pushing them further and further works really well. Not that I play I haven't played to that yet, but that's an interesting concept. Soon. Soon. In quotation marks. Yes, <laughs> soon TM. Whenever but I would thing, give a bunch of pages of feedback. Go ahead. The thing that I would point out there is that I think a lot of the games, like the ones that Lenny was talking about, they're they're very directed. Like the reason why they only last for one session, or maybe three, is because there's a very narrow thing that they're trying to do. Like the one he mentioned about gray ranks. I'm not sure if this is in, included in that list. Is it? Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I I yeah. Gray ranks. Uh, yeah. You you play like you basically play the. Uh, the the Polish kid uh, in uh, you know sort of three key phases of their thing you can play through the thing in like in like one one sitting. Yeah, the the thing with that though is that it is extremely narrow. It is building upon this very structured setup of you are a Polish young person going off to war. Like, this is very narrow of a scope of a thing. Yeah, and plus you're Polish, so it's already a handicap. Sorry, uh, my mom wow. Polish, I had to do it. <laughs> wow. But, yeah, the, the, the issue with why I think this has been historically very narrow in scope is because to get these specific kind of emotional responses and things that you're thinking about, they've had to basically construct a very specific scenario to play out. Right. And once you do that, it's like, well, it's probably only going to be fit for a very short period of time because people can 
like your players can buy into something, but they can only buy into something that is handed to them for so long. Like they basically need room to grow and move around. And that kind of means you don't know exactly what they're doing. So the only way to get around that is basically like what Rob, Mark, and myself are doing is basically building this in such a way so that the players tell the GM and the game what it is they find interesting that they want to explore because that way they can move around and change within it because otherwise you're going to be stuck with a session one to three game like you can't really get around it otherwise they have to be able to expand the game at a rate that is fitting to them and the game in turn also has to be able to adapt to them as they get used to the game it has to expand itself to match what they are now capable of tackling yep right all through legacy elements included yeah although i'm obligated to point out that like that 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 narrowness is also the the thing that is the key to those games being able to consistently successfully provide meaningful experiences because like they're they're laser focused on that like it's sort of like they're trading flexibility for reliability in that regard right right? like yeah right i think you can still get some degree of reliability it's just it's not going to be quite as guaranteed intense I think you can still get reliability in terms of it'll still give a a very interesting and meaningful experience. It just may not be as emotionally intense as these particular ones because you can't guarantee what kind of scenario the players are going to come up with. You can only guarantee that the players will come up with an interesting scenario. Right. But I, I think that like there's some, something that spoke out to me with what y'all are saying there is y'all mentioned the ascension one to three problem of things falling apart within that or this um this need for like the game which i would include the gm the table the social space of the game to adapt to what is wanted so then it can explore more because the problem is y'all are saying this my brain's like well why wouldn't you do that like that, that's my that's the default for me that like that makes sense and then trying to explain it to people can help see what the difference is there and as well, designers there's like you, you can say that like you could say it's easy but then designing it's hard go ahead Kat. yeah yeah that's basically where i was gonna go is like i i don't think this is something that it'd be why wouldn't you do that because i think a it's a shit ton of extra time and effort to do it it is a much higher a level of design standard to get it to work at all like it's not just oh well you have to be really good at your job to do this it's also that you have to invest years to make this work properly i i don't think that a lot of these games are things that it's like yeah we've been working on this for a decade and we'll finally release it it's like no they actually want to produce a game within right. a year or two probably so that you gotta eat sell it right. yeah, yeah somebody needs to eat at some yeah. point this is true yeah. and there's a weird point where like just think about that there's a weird sort of incentive meta structure that comes to mind which is like 
in theory, if you were to do the game does not do that and consistently iterates on itself or releases year every few years, unless like that's a theoretical meta incentive and structure that pushes you away from like if people if most people aren't asking for deeper experiences, then right. is it worse of an opportunity cost to make deeper experiences? <laughs> it, it, as a player, I've noticed this a lot too, which is like, it, oh. <laughs> Go ahead, sorry, Rob. Oh, no, no, I was just going to respond to what you said, which was it, it's the thing that's kept me from releasing, like, or, or releasing versions of Ashes that came before this, like, that were virtually complete. And it's because I was still dissatisfied. Right. And I am in the rare, rare, rare position of not needing to do this for a living. Mm-hmm. Right. And it affords me the opportunity to do something truly crazy. Like, so what I, I should do it because I have, I have the privilege. Like it, 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 if I, if I don't do something like this, then I'm kind of wasting it in a sense, because I don't need to do this to feed myself, but I love it so much that I can, it, it's still basically bottomless to me. Right. And but that's also what a lot of games ask of us or we look for and like generally in terms of like like as as a hobby in general i don't want to like make a month out of it but that also feels like a lot of the promise of games in the first place yeah but but it's not needing to trade in market viability for the 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 vision of the final product the, I because I'm free of that consideration. I it's free to be an expression, and not it, and, and it's not constrained by w- what people might think the market would accept. And because I have, I can do that. Like it, 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 it seems that I should. And maybe that's just an—I imp- mean—that is an imposition I'm putting on myself. But I don't know. It—it still—it still bothers me. <laughs> so that's yeah. My, like it, it bothers me too because like I'm coming up on nearly a decade of playing tabletop RPGs off and on, and there's this weird situation of finding myself trying to help help others learn about more collaborative or open styles like y'all do that like I enjoy. And finding either a lot of pushback or a lot of moments where I can step back and say, this is not what I want. Or even like thinking about what Lenny mentioned about like their experiences and what I've experienced. We often demand that out of other media like television or just general like other engagements and games are going there. But it seems as though there's this like, like, trick like double trick to it almost where like people are trying to make their games and do better but you need to permeate the culture that or exists or the design that already exists but not get roped into it at the same time so that like you're get you're getting stuck in that framework i have lost the train of thought there but i was also like, no, it's, did it's you have about, anything Lenny? go ahead um, from my perspective just to briefly say what yeah. you're saying it's about it, it's not about getting out of the framework. It's about realizing you're so ensconced in the framework that it becomes a tool. Yeah. That's that's it. That's Go a ahead. better way to put it, yeah. 
and and I, I think it's I think it there is a real question out there that I'm skeptical of, uh, mm-hmm. about the degree to which we can expect we, whether to the degree to which it's reasonable to expect the same kinds of of things that we get from well-crafted television or well-crafted film or well-crafted novel mm. in the role-playing game experience because the limb fact on that is always going to be us right. like those forms of 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 you know engagement to the degree to which they have literary merit or not right like there's mm-hmm. you know uh uh there's critical role in studies of that and or like how RPG studies is very interdisciplinary in the way that it involves like writing and then what counts as game text and meta text and everything. Right. But I, I mean, in terms of like, in terms of play, mm-hmm. right. There's just always going to be the degree that no matter how technically successful you are on paper to encourage these kinds of interactions and behaviors, like, like I said, it just, it, it's just, we, like people have different natural abilities as storytellers, yeah. right? Like people have, like, you know. So yeah, there's a lot of that that, like, I, I think it's worth asking the question of, yeah, is is that a bridge too far? Should we really be I aiming there, or should we paint this. a different target? Go ahead. No, I can actually answer this because I have worked as a ghostwriter for a couple years. Mm, yeah. Um, so I have actually written novels for people that they did not have any writing experience and what i've generally found is that most people actually can come up with a good story they do not have the training to actually put it into words but they have the story there like they can come up with a story they just don't know how to actually tell the story and yeah story story right story imagining and storytelling are two different skills Yeah, and this is something that we're actually doing is with the way the games are set up, we're basically giving tools to make it easier for them to tell a story. It's not going to be quite the same as like, you know, an expert novelist who they've been working at this for 50 years. They've actually learned how to do all these different skills for like dialogue, um, setting up uh, things before. Before they happen, there's a term for that, and I totally blanked on it. Like Upscon, or just general, like plotting three X structure. Yeah, that kind of thing. Anyway, but the point is that it's they're not going to be able to tell as complicated of a story, but they will be if you put into the game and actually teach the players certain methods of storytelling like here's the kind of thing that you would add for a backstory it's not just here's a list of backstories pick from one of them it's like here's the kinds of things that you would put in a backstory not like you don't need a 19 page backstory but you need something that gives an indication of how the character thinks, what they value, and a hook that the GM can latch onto and use. Yeah. If you t- yeah. So yeah. if you I- go through and you give them these tools one at a time so that they can actually tell a story, 
then I think that's actually within reason of them being able to do it. It's just, you have to actually give them the tools and explain how the tools work and how to use the tools. Once you do that, I think it's actually within their grasp. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I, I agree that there is a great deal that the game designer can do to lead the proverbial horse to the proverbial water. Mm. Right? It does, it does use a lot of um, word count, though. Like, sure. Yeah, and also, like, not, not, not everyone game. wants to play a game to feel like they're attending a lecture, but also many games can be seen as having many lectures in disguise. Ew. Um... <laughs> I think it's important. I mean, I, I know. I hear what you're saying, actually, in there because, like, it is. There's, there's so it's because we're ash, actually asking players to extract from something impossibly dense, right? Which is structure of narrative. Um, what you what like what I find and what I use in ashes is first I start with symbols. And that allows players to word cloud, which is the second thing they do in the journal. And then, like that, from there, there's there's things to pursue, right? And then, but it's all their own. I don't. I don't. It's not all their own, right? I give them the symbol, right? I give them a symbol, or ask them to come up with a symbol, whichever, uh, depending on the situation. Um, but but then translating that into verbal part is like yeah very much a storytelling thing because all storytellers do that all storytellers go to an archetype and say ah the archetypes behaviors are this meaning in this situation it will do x or it will do x or y you know based on fate or whatever and so just asking players to just think symbolically rather than rely purely on words first uh, is also something that I'm trying to achieve because I believe that allows you to refine your thoughts a little bit better from total chaos. Right, and it's, and it's, it's less stress because of how, I'm just thinking mimetically speaking, how often we're used to making connections with symbols right. in general or how like one could argue, for example, the way that we think about or design RPGs now has a lot of you're working with symbols and then you turn that to a different form of design or literary engagement. Like the idea of, you know, what we think a paladin or a hero looks like can be seen as a series of symbols. Then when that comes to fun, that can also say like, where do we, again, like the, not even, not the, what is fun question, but we think about the ways that games can be fun or engaging. One thing that comes to mind is if, if a game, like if a game asks us to look deeper to, into those symbols, or mm-hmm. curt our own symbols, does that mean like the baseline quote unquote fun breaks or the superficial layer collapses in on itself, which yeah. is very subjective and difficult? But it also feels like an important part here because it's not just about being a better designer and designing, but there's also a better reader or when you're becoming a better player. Like when you're helping players be a better player, you're helping them read their world or just think differently or better and it's not always a linear path no but when you think about fun you know like people some people will have this thing that they had fun that they did when they were young kids and they will have an entirely different relationship with it later and mm-hmm. some games will try to create a treadmill that you mentioned with the D money treadmill but for fun 
but then like how much of that is the game trying to force that and how much of is that you know other factors yeah i think, I, I think, I think it being non-linear is really important mm-hmm. I, I mean, and and also that it's that it is you know we can't forget that it is totally valid yeah to to use the rpg hobby I'm going to pick on D&D again because we're all doing it. Why the fuck not? Yay! Um, uh, uh, There there is a perfectly valid way to play D&D as football for nerds. Yes, that's such a good analogy. And, like, it is... We have to recognize that, like, you know, we're speaking towards a very specific, like, like goal here. Saying it's not linear (laughs) is also to say it's not hierarchical. Like... Um, so, you know, that's, a, you know, I have to... Have yeah, to that's that's a fantastic point, because, like, that's also part with the fun, too. Like, when you're talking about how you have, even in the D&D Discord of, it's interesting to hear, like, when you're talking about the race or feminist or fun conversations, often you have to be explicit to say, the way that IGM or play is not meaning to invalidate or compare mine to yours, they're just different. And often, because games are so personal when it comes to the way that people can be traumatized by negative gaming experiences, or the way that, like, they engage with fun can lead to a lot of growth. Like the Apocalypse World Gender is a Game article coming to mind, or a lot of people, myself included, having RPGs as part of discovering who they are, Mm -hmm. or their identity. That all factors in, but again, this whole, like, that's not going to be the same for everyone. Right. And there's a there's a moment where you can tell how well a conversation in that way will go, which is that to protect Rob will often say someone's protecting their shadow on you, but when that you attempt to recognize that shadow in the conversation of a game or a larger like context of RPGs, and when they are receptive to that versus when they're not. Because mm-hmm. then that like that 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 can that lets you tell can we go down this road or type of conversation or not with certain right. groups you can say is this even viable? Is there mm-hmm. anything I'm curious, Rob, in the text of Ashes? Yeah. Where in the introductory part of of whatever you imagine that's going to look like, where the game speaks specifically to the reader about who they should play the game with, because I'm. The reason why I asked that is because Actually, it, it's, yeah. it's yeah. Well, that's good. Because I think that's a. It's interesting that that's a thing that is missing from text, right? That like that like we often think about RPG design as attempting to create or facilitate the creation of a particular kind of structured experience, mm-hmm. right? But we don't often, which is odd because role playing games is such a social hobby. Yes. Uh, that we don't talk about. The people, I don't think I've ever read an RPG where there's been a section in the introduction that says the kinds of people you want to play this with to enjoy this game are. Right, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think about it that way. Yeah. I mean, it's like the no playing for fascist thing, but that's a, that's a more political and ideological statement compared to like, but also no, like not. who in their marketing would do that is a, hmm. No, that's really I, interesting. I actually... I actually did cover that. Sort of. The thing is, I don't think it's good to, for the most part, to say this is the type of person you want to play this game with unless it's a very narrowly defined game. Like if it's a very heavy combat focused game, there's not a whole lot of 
uh, social interaction built into the game, then you might be like, yeah, don't play this game with people who don't like power gaming kind of thing. Like, that might actually be a good idea, but... Right, that, like, right, but, I mean, and it doesn't have to be, like, I mean, it doesn't have to be... I think that there are ways of doing such a section narrowly and broadly that would be functional on both levels, right? Like, yeah. like, like everything else in any, like, text, especially in RPG text, it's just tricky, that's all. Yeah, the main, (laughs) the main way I've tackled it is to basically say, okay, there's a couple of different theories that exist out there, but here's, like, if you broad concepts of things that people consider to be fun. So different people will have different things on this list that they will consider to be interesting and important. When you're setting up your group, everybody should mark down what things they consider to be interesting on this list. And you should share it and basically make sure the GM knows what you're interested in. If everybody wants something that coincides, this is great. There's probably going to be a mixture of things that you want. This has to be taken into account when you're playing the game and when you're making your characters to deal with each other. Because if you don't do this, you're going to wind up with characters and gameplay that does not match the players. Right. So this has to be taken into consideration. It doesn't need to be a large section. It's just something that this has to be considered as all. Right. Or then what you're saying is that my brain goes to examples of GMs may try to do that, but then that that comes to the mind of the dynamics of the game, like the meta, the, the social engagement of the game becomes such that you're asking a GM to not only be the st- main storyteller in many games, but also a manager, which is not what you want to do. And when the game does that, they're like, you're lifting some of that weight off the shoulders or yes. you're like being explicit. It, I think it's not so much making the GM manager in this case. It's making sure that everybody is aware of the, the concept that different people are in the game for different reasons. And if they're even just so much aware of the fact that this player likes exploring stuff. Right. If you go into a dungeon, they're going to want to map yeah. out the entire fucking thing. If you are not okay with that, this has to be mentioned early on. Otherwise, you're just going to breed resentment among your players. Like This isn't even the GM that has to deal with it. Mm -hmm. It's that the players have to be aware that they might be looking for different things out of the game. Right, and Session Zero was kind of an attempt to do that, but I want to say with what you're saying, with one exception in my power of nearly 10 years, which is that Beam Saber game, of a D&D GM, and I was mostly guiding everyone through the book and checking in. Out of, like, one experience, I've, like, that that lev- that conversation that you're talking about has only happened once or twice, like, in however many ten years. But I'm not a designer, but it's, there's... It feels like you have to bring it up if you're used to it, or else it may never happen at all. Yeah. Especially when you're, like, playing with randoms, or you're introducing someone, or often, if unless you're a GM who enforces that, that's not really going to happen. Well, and another thing you have to take into consideration is that a lot of there is this, I think, a statistically significant portion of gamers who 
whose goals for a particular game change depending on who's in it. Like, mm-hmm. I can sit down and play D&D with, you know, the group of my friends that have, like, you know, D20 truck nuts on their truck or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, like, um, that's not true. They, there's no such thing as D20 truck nuts. If there were, I'd buy them. But, um, yeah. uh, just in case you need to I'm checking uh, just in case. I know. Cat's like, don't tease me with fake D20 truck nuts. I'm um, right oh now. my. Wait, I'm sure you're um, curious. But, uh, but my point is mm-hmm. that, like, you know, if I'm playing with three of the people who are like cast members of the Hideout Theater here in Austin, which is one of the like bigger improv theaters, I'm going to come to that game with some expectations about, you know, being able to chain narrative threads between people Mm -hmm. and stuff, because they're all people that I know are really good at improv, which means even if we play D&D, I know that thing is probably going to be happening. And that's like, I tailor my expectations. Mm -hmm. And then I have my D20 truck nuts guys. And I'm like, if I come into a a and d game with them, I have zero expectation of walking away with a with an ecumenically meaningful experience, but that's something I'm choosing. Right. And there's a weird situation where like with what you're saying, there's a difference between like you being self-aware, you being able to bring it up with a group you already have, the group not bringing it up at all, the game pushing you to either make your own fun or not, and this weird sort of like the, the the it's like it feels like a meme, but it's like ah yes to have to do this you first have to become self aware, which is like yes, um, but like the design what is if the design is in theory self aware enough to do that because like for example with the D and D example you have know your players, but that but because of the way that the GM's guide is like players don't look at this, games won't usually ask you to know yourself. <laughs> <laughs> where they'll sure. try to like substitute like the oh yes we will find meaning through this game but that's not the same thing sure 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 and all i'm trying to get at in this yeah. is to say that like when if you're to, that in the the theoretical object of this kind of text in an rpg intro that seeks to tell you some version of you will enjoy this game more if you play it with people who are into these things mm-hmm. um Mine's like yeah there's uh a lot of Out of all of the factors that are in that messy bubble that you just said, Sabrina, I think the trick is, as a designer, figuring out which two or three of those you want to try to control for, which of those it's most important to try and control for, and then, you know, pray for daylight on the rest of it. (laughs) (laughs) One other thing, since we kind of got off of that topic, but I do want to cover it. The thing that Rob was talking about symbology and that it had kept being brought up of being oh. not linear. Hold on a sec. I think I don't know if Rob can hear us. Rob, can you check? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you, Rob. Oh, can I hear you? Can you hear me? I'm not I'm not sure. No one just yep. okay. Can you hear us now? Yeah. Yep, okay. There we go. Yeah. Symbology. Symbology. Yeah, the symbology thing. And about it being not, it kept being brought up that it was not linear, but I don't think it's so much that it's not linear as it is open-ended, which is not exactly the same thing. So like the thing is, 
you can have like symbology of say fire, for example, and you tell people, oh, fire means that you are very active and you're emotional. You don't think things through kind of thing, but that's prescribing what the symbology means. Whereas you can also have symbology where it's like, okay, you're using the symbology of fire. What does fire mean to you? And some people be like, fire burns things, fire destroys. Other people will be like, fire is warmth and caring and nurturing. It encourages growth kind of thing. It's like the, the important part is that you're asking what the symbology means to the player because it's like that that weird hiring question sometimes they'll do with like job interviews of like which animal would you be and why and the important part there is the why if you don't ask the why then the question is meaningless right yeah it's it's right and there's a lot of ways you can help players uh sort of dial in that thing uh like the animal one's a great that's a great example like we players aren't often there are there are some games and dnd does this in some parts where like players are asked to choose an animal right and then they pick something that represents them and that becomes significant to their character but very rarely does the game take it further than that and let them expand upon what that symbol is and more more readily embody it in, in the character through non-mechanical means i mean many players will do that as a matter of course like if they choose wolf for their druid or whatever, right? Then they'll make their they'll make their druid act more wolfy. But there's no incentive in the game to do that, and there's no repercussions in the game if they don't do that. So well, it, sometimes it, there might be repercussions in the sense of like considering like how much a game punishes not going down a certain path or questions of optimal player. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, not. Just like if you start, if if you don't describe your druid as dressing like a wolf, but they're they're all everything else about them is wolf, all the mechanics are wolf themed, but that's as far as you take it. The game says that's fine, right? And I'm saying it's not prompting the game, should not not let you say that's fine. The game should say, No, give me, give me more. Like what? What else about the wolf do you embody? Right. Yeah, I have a I have a shorthand that I use a lot, um, because I play a lot of games that have the high cognitive load, make stuff out of nothing, woo, um, and uh, and uh, you know, one of the things I tell players, especially when I'm GMing, is I'll I'll say put it on camera for me. Yes, that's so good. What does the instead of like let's let's get into an abstract discussion of how this aspect of yours is relevant to the action you're taking? Put it on camera for me. What right. when we see your kid? Like I narrow it down to one sentence, right. right? I'm like, what do we see in your character, inside or outside of your character? Let's pretend we have a telepathic camera. Right. Like put it on camera for me. What do we see happening? And right. usually that helps break the logjam of like, oh, yeah, if I have to show it, here's what it looks like. Right. right. Or that it can go into like wandering um, dodge habits or novelizing. The the analogy comes to mind is some people say you treat it 
each session is a TV show episode. Yeah, some games explicitly sort of assume that, yeah. I don't love that structure because there's too much, generally speaking, people have a lot of baggage attached to that, and they will try and force things like, you know, sitcom arcs or something like that. (laughs) Um, But no, that goes back to what what Lenny was saying about um, um, the perspective, right? Forcing the player to perspectivize what's going on in the narrative. I think there's, I mean, there's a narrative pentad there that, that I key into. So the GMs know what, like where, where the disconnects are. One of the things that's very difficult to figure out in games is uh, as a GM is troubleshooting what's happening in a conversation. Um, Especially when you're not, uh, you don't understand like what page the players are on. And not from a, they're going off the rails in the story that you have in your head, but in the, I, I don't know why you're doing this type move. Right. I, I, you have a different story in your head than I do right now, and your, your action doesn't make sense. Or, you know, what you're describing is so disconnected from what I think I'm doing that we don't have, like, and, and so providing a tool to get people back on track, like the one you just mentioned, Lenny, of, like, the... Yeah, we've been describing we've been describing what the whatness of this thing for like ten minutes. Right. Like, yeah. Tell me, yeah. Tell me, tell me what what like what happens on camera, right? right? And so you're pulling them out of the propositional phase, the propositional knowledge part of the pentad, and pulling them into the perspectival part of the pentad. And, right. And, you can do, and pe- players will do. I will have. Uh, I noticed that players will do something very similar where they'll, they'll be stuck in the player's perspective, right? Like you'll ask them, what do you do? And they go, oh, well, I, I, I look around and do I, you know, they keep narrativizing, describing the environment, right? Yep. Yep. Not getting to like, okay. And then, and then as the GM, I want to be able for you to know like, oh, they're describing a perspective. What I need to ask them for is a, a procedure, I need to yes. ask how or how they're participating. What's 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 like? Yeah, the act. Give me the timing of yeah. this. Yes. The, right. the issue I'm finding here is that it's it's too open ended of a question without actually providing any direction. So, like, when you're asking them, "What do you do?" It's like, okay, um, I'm supposed to do something here, but I don't know what. Right. When Lenny was mentioning the prompt of basically the visual description. He's telling them what's expected of them to a degree. He's he's giving them the idea that I actually want something from you. What I specifically want is a visual description of what you are doing. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you have a visual description, it's like, okay, I know that I have to tell you what I'm doing, but I have to tell you what I'm doing in a way that I actually have to think of it like a movie scene or something. Right. Um, uh, so I got to jump in here real quick because this is good for the show notes. Are you familiar with uh, Swords Without Master, the game Swords Without Master? I've never heard of it. What is that? It is, it is, I think, the only sword and sorcery RPG that actually exists. Um, yeah. And... I, I see what you mean. Okay. And uh, one of the mechanisms, the reason why I wanted to bring this up right now, just off of what you just said, Kat, is that one of the mechanisms that it has in it that's really fucking cool 
is it gives a voice, a structured voice, almost like a, a character of its own to the game master. Like the game master is expected to say certain things at certain times to the players in a certain way, because one of the things you do in the game master is also play the character of the whatever their name is for the fucking narrator guy. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And like one of the scene framing tools in that has a prompt that's specifically like what you're talking about, that instead of just saying, what do you do? And it's too open-ended to give. So I could ask for a scene as the overmaster. That's the fucking name of the role. Um, that's probably not true, but we'll fucking say it is. Why not? And <laughs> one of the, one of the, um, the, the, uh, jobs that that character does is I will say, okay, Rob, you're, let's say you are playing in my game and you have a hero, uh, named, you know, jackass or whatever. And, and I, I, I will say to you, tell me how jackass escaped from his captivity by the city guard. And that's yeah. the that is what opens the scene. So instead of framing stuff like, you know, well, we know a jackass is in prison. Are we going to do anything about that? It is literally and players can do this to each other. The over the over player isn't the, the, the only person that does it. Mm -hmm. um, but the way that a lot of scenes start are by these kinds of very specific like like um uh tell me tell me what uh what transpired at the tower of you know whatever the hell or yeah. tell me tell me how it is that jackass was the first to notice the danger yeah i right. I, I do that as a matter of course as the gm advice like that's it's it all of those stuff is um played the game is played as if it already happened Right. And what I love right. about that format is that it it kill it, it it diminishes some of the cognitive load yes. that Kat is talking about. Because like, you know, if I say to you, give me any number, but then I right. say to you, give me an even number, you will come up with right. the even number much faster. But like yeah. like um and and that's one of the things that I love about it is that it it forces that exact kind of thing where yeah. you're communicating precisely what one player is expecting of one another in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and the vi the few times, I've only gotten to do it a, a handful mm -hmm. of times, but every single time it's a hoot. Like, I, those have been some of my favorite games. Yeah. Source of That Master, to me, is one of those games that like almost unfailingly produces an experience. That, sticks that sounds great. And two points to add with what you're saying. Yeah. Like, Last week, I had that experience of like you have a mission uh, to basically figure out the this this magical drug, and this is a location. This is what we know. Go, and it was basically half an hour to forty five minutes of some people trying to plan, some people looking to other people, and it was a lot of dead time. And I'm right. thinking that when you do that technique, and Blades does this with flashbacks, or as GM principles as you mentioned. Uh -huh. um, you reduce that faff, like basically you reduce that, like you reduce that, but you also let the focus be easier. Like um, when you have like a session or a play experience, have like half an hour or however long of that, like plotting, you're losing. Why are we doing this session? Why are we like the, why are we here question? Um, then when you go into that technique or you put it into your game, then you are asking people to like, no snap, get to it and have that focus that's right there. And I like that a lot because 
like I think some people will say like, well, that half an hour of time is part of the role play or why we play. But is it? No, it's to get to those moments. And when you can be more stronger and confident in like, you know, in the middle of an action scene, why why did you like why you want the run go instead of having to set that all up like a pin of dominoes? I guess you could have more of those fun moments that Rob was looking for because you don't have to set them all up yourself. Right. I guess. Or 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 they don't we we just recognize that setting up the dominoes isn't why we're here. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And then we can all dispense with setting up the dominoes and pick out the dominoes that we want from the thing that makes the story. But I do have, I mean, I, there, it, it may sound that this is like really freeform, but they're, they're kind of constraints. Like, because one of the ways I constrain it with the, the dice, where, where the dice matter here is like, they give you the ability to do stuff in the, in the narration, right? So like, that's, you, you have, you have a certain criteria, like, you know, that, uh, you know, there were two consequences that happened, and there was a point at which, uh, let's say, you rolled really well on your magic at die, and, and uh, it really overwhelmed something and had an extra effect. And you have those sort of constraints, and then you tell me what happened. It, as as the guide, you're telling the guide like what happened inside that place, or or maybe not. Maybe you are just you may be just notating symbolically in your journal what happened, and not mentioning it at all to the players. You're just like going, oh, I went here and then I did, oh, I used this tool and this tool and I spent these resources and that's as much as I want to care about it. Like, right. I, I achieved my goal, but I'm not really interested in narrating like what, like more than that. Right. And then and, you're, you're reducing yeah. cognitive load through the journal being the main, like, ideally the main lexicon you draw on and improve. So rather than going in from like rather than fully stepping out outside of your head so to speak or into the player or storyteller mode the journal was part of that and so you can have that focus and intent where i feel like other games we can get stuck in this situation of transitioning between player to character to storyteller and those transition points can have dead air or friction or when a table is not fully cognizant of that dynamic then you can have the fun fall apart because, like, not not fully fall apart, but, like, the fun, the effort you have to put in to get fun being different from different people means that, like, you're going to have different diminishing returns, if that makes sense. One thing that I think is very important here. That's something the games need to lean into. Yeah. Okay, something that I think that is very important here is that when there's dead air, it's generally because people don't know what's expected to be put in there. Right. Like you it's sometimes it's like I just haven't been given a proper prompt. Sometimes it's just you have said something and it's just left me dumbstruck. Like, what do you even say in response to that? But when you have dead air, it usually means that somebody wants to say something, they just don't know what to say there. So if you're going to do that. Like, the thing that Sabrina was mentioning about talking in combat forever. Uh, not forever, but the talking in combat thing. Generally, you don't have players doing, like, monologues in combat, even though every other medium this happens in, like, doesn't matter if it's a radio player, a TV show, or a movie, or fucking wrestling. 
they'll stop for a monologue in the middle of a fight. Yep. Like, why does this not happen in games? Well, you look at something like D&D, it's like, oh, it limits you to, you can say so many words, I think it's like seven, as a free action, and then you start taking penalties for it. And it doesn't really prompt you to do that sort of thing. It's not like, okay, there's a lull in the combat, you can now actually talk, and there's certain kind of conversation topics. Like, you can accuse the enemy of being evil and doing this thing. You can say, I'm going to get my revenge on you for, like, killing my father. Or um, you have minions with you, and we are starting to get the upper hand. We're going to offer to let them surrender. Like, things Good like point. that. If if you put a prompt there and say, okay, there's lone combat, nobody's talking, nobody's doing anything, GM, take an opportunity, just say, okay, you can you can actually talk now. There are certain things that you can say that will have mechanical effect. What What are you going to do with this? What are you going to say? Here's a couple of things that you might consider saying. Go for it. So I'm reminded of a structure from the from Clinton R. Nixon's The Shadow of Yesterday. Uh, I've now determined that clearly my job on this show is to to tell to to remind everyone of old ass indie role playing games that that used to be right. cool. But this is um, a good thing. <laughs> in, the, in Clinton R. Nixon's The Shadow of Yesterday, uh, the framing for what are not actually combat scenes or don't have to be is um that 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 he came up with the idea of making those kinds of scenes a function of pacing and detail and the way that it was described it is basically like what are the what we have defined a moment important enough to hold a magnifying glass yes up to that scene and to track the rate at which things happen differently than we normally do yeah it has and, to scale in granularity right and um that was one of the first things that led me to what is now my ultimate conclusion that all combat mechanics are just pacing mechanics but that's a whole <laughs> other show that's dope. <laughs> um but uh but it's interesting um cat because one of the ways in which it avoids the problem that you're talking about is that because it doesn't specifically define the scene as anything but we are going moment to moment to moment instead of broad swath of narration to broad swath of narration, you actually can get the kind of thing that you're talking about bounded within that scene because like it hasn't been labeled this is the combat mechanic, right? Mm, that makes sense. Uh, and that's interesting. And it also means that, like, social harm and emotional harm are on the table. Yes. Like, you can, like, d take a character out of the game with a combination of emotional and physical damage that's on the same track. Like, harm is harm, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it was one of the first indie games that did that, too, now that I think about it. Good, That's good great. on you, Mr. Nixon. Like I've, I've not. If you're listening, 
God bless you. We love you. Not that Nixon. Not that Nixon. Yeah. He's not listening, though. Yeah. For sure. That Nixon. Or maybe. I mean. Dun, dun, dun. What happened now? Anyway. We've certainly had a lot of fun on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is, we, we, are, we, we are at the two-hour mark, y'all. Uh, it has flown by. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I don't know if we talked about topic much. but well, We talked about around it, and Lenny, talked, thank you so much for coming on. Things, for sure. Yep. Yeah, anyway. uh, yeah uh, no problem, Sabrina. This is the only corner of the internet where anybody gives a shit anymore what I have to say, so. <laughs> like, like, Welcome to the club, buddy. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, it's 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 hard not to show up. Like, uh-huh. fair. It's been I'm, lovely, though. Well, we love yeah. you. Yeah, likewise, so, thank you. Oh, likewise, interesting to have both you and Sabrina on because you usually have really interesting things to say, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. And that right, definitely right. covers for us so that we don't have to. It's great. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. If, if if you would like to be on this podcast to talk like me or Lenny or discover new things about yourself or how to talk out of your ass and discover you have more confidence and knowledge than you originally thought, you can look at the link to the Discord and come and join in. Wow. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. That's the best review we've ever gotten. Yep. <laughs> Yes, there there are insights aplenty here for you if you like, if you really enjoy crawling up your own ass. (laughs) Not me. That's not what I've heard. (laughs) Game design crawling up your own ass when painted a time. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, and and I might add, crawling up your own ass and not dying. Yes. Yeah, it's just the Ouroboros in reverse. Right, yeah. All right. With that, everybody, have a good night. It is night where you are. Always remember that. We're out. We're out.